2: Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. For over two decades, the IBM Center for the Business of Government has sought to connect research to practice, engaging authors and academics who, in their research and studies, contribute in some form or fashion to changing the way government does business. How do U.S. local governments apply enterprise approaches in natural disaster preparedness, emergency management, and post-disaster recovery. What strategies can localities adopt and adapt to build greater resiliency and support economic recovery following a natural disaster? Today, we'll explore these questions and so much more with Catherine Willoughby, co-author of the IBM Center Report, How Localities Continually Adapt Enterprise Strategies to Manage Natural Disasters. Catherine, welcome to the show. It is great to have you.
0: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
2: So, Catherine, your recent report for the IBM Center uh, was uh, how localities continually adapt enterprise strategies to manage natural disasters. What prompted your interest in this area, and how did you conduct your research?
0: Well... Um, I got interested in this a couple years ago with several colleagues, Dr. Sarah Beth Gell, who's now at the Roosevelt Institute in New York, and Dr. Coma DeZepede, who's a professor at SUNY Binghamton in New York. And both of my colleagues were graduate students of mine back in the day. So it was very, uh, very nice to get involved with them on some research. And we got together to present a paper at a conference, and we looked at three local governments who had Um, experienced a natural weather-related disaster in 2011. Tuscaloosa, Alabama um, had a a tornado. Louisa County, uh, Virginia experienced an earthquake. And Binghamton, New York experienced flooding all in 2011. And so we wanted to look at the long-term fiscal effects of such a disaster and to see how localities grapple with this and sort of come out of it. And it was interesting to find that even as of 2018-19, these governments were still talking about and managing aspects related to those disasters. And it fostered some innovation. In Louisa County, for instance, they were able to uh, marshal a brand new high school. They already had plans drawn up ready for a new high school. And um, when disaster struck and destroyed um, the foundations of the high school, then they were able to act quickly and agilely to garner funding to get that up and running. Prior to that, in the direct aftermath of the disaster, they were very innovative in making sure that their students, um, middle school and high school students, could continue on with classes by managing the different levels on different days in the middle school that had not been destroyed. So we learned a lot from that research and then um, we from that research we got a request to write a book and in researching the book we have um, engaged with the icma to add some questions to disaster related questions to their periodic survey to local governments about uh, fiscal and management strategies and um, again we engaged with the ibm um, business uh, of government to uh, developed this report. So we've actually gotten several articles and um, the report and other uh, outlets related to this just from that one conference paper a couple of years ago. Uh,
2: Catherine, I want to spend a little time sort of defining terms. Your report for the IBM Center examines enterprise approaches. Would you elaborate on what you mean by enterprise
0: approach? Sure, an enterprise approach It literally means all hands on deck. And it means, um, number one, sort of related to whole of community, engaging all of government and uh, residents, business, nonprofits, partners in preparing for and managing through and recovering from disaster. It requires that government officials have a a full understanding, a comprehensive understanding of their current operations, their infrastructure, the shape of their infrastructure, their financial status and capacity, an accounting of their networks and partnerships, both where they could be receiving support and giving support. And they have to really understand the makeup and capacity of the public they serve so that they have an understanding of what they can expect to ask of their public in times of disaster. And so this kind of an approach supports outcomes by engaging all parts of the community, all parts of government, and all aspects of business and community life.
2: And the next uh, term I'd like you to define for us and give us some context around is uh, the focus of your report is on local resiliency. Can you define for us what resiliency means within the context of your report?
0: Yeah, resiliency. We define it as the ability, in this case, of a locality, a local government, to to quote weather a natural disaster with the least losses in terms of human life, property, um, public and private property, and finances. Real resiliency can mean a lot of things. It can. It sort of gets at this idea of bount, being able to bounce back. Um, And that's very hard for local governments to do, particularly small local governments. So um, we are getting at this idea that disasters are more frequent today, disasters of all sorts. Um, Weather-related disasters are more ferocious and more frequent. We also have man-made disasters attacks, um, ransomware attacks, for instance, we have accidents like chemical spills. and we've got the pandemic. So governments today are dealing the normal world today for local governments is managing one or more disasters pretty much all the time. And so resiliency means being able to manage through that with the least losses human fiscal and uh, otherwise
2: uh, Catherine the natural disaster problem as you point out is complex and ever-changing and a tremendous threat to the resiliency of local governments can you give us a sense perhaps tell us a little bit more about the u.s national preparedness system
0: well the the national preparedness system which you can look at um, from the FEMA website is very important it relates to I mean it inherent it in that uh, system is our intergovernmental system, which is unique in many cases when you compare it to other systems around the world. Um, We have a federal government that provides support In times of disasters, we have state governments that can be the the, um, vortex, so to speak, to provide support and also management um, to local governments. And then we have the localities, boots on the ground that literally are the immediate um, response to disaster. And so it's a complicated system. Um, We've got one federal government, we've got 50 states that operate differently. Their emergency management agencies across the 50 states all operate slightly differently. And, um, And then local governments, of course, sort of march to their own tune to a certain extent and um, have vastly different capacities to uh, respond to disaster. So the national preparedness system is important for helping provide avenues for governments and to a certain extent individuals to understand the things they need to do and be prepared for. And if you look at the six parts of that system, FEMA talks about identifying and assessing risk, how to assess risk in your communities and have an understanding of what kinds of disasters um, are probably likely to hit, Um, estimating your capability to um, recover from such uh, disasters. How to build and sustain your capabilities, given your uh, governments are at all different levels. Um, Understanding our national incident management system. Planning, uh, a lot of planning uh, support is provided from this preparedness system. And then understanding if you're continually working toward building your capabilities, your readiness capabilities as well as your abilities to um, manage through disaster. So it's important to have this plan. Um, I will say I I was um, talking with an interviewer the other day and noted that it's very significant that Biden, the new administration, has declared the pandemic a disaster. And this then frees up uh, the work of FEMA to be able to roll down to the states and then to local governments for um, support to battle the virus, and in particular right now to um, for vaccine dissemination.
2: So as a follow-on to the description of the U.S. national preparedness system, I'd like to talk about the community resilience model, the Becker model you noted in your report, how does this represent the whole of community concept and enterprise approach?
0: Yeah, the importance of what Becker is talking about and his colleagues is that it recognizes that there's not only a requirement that government be ready. You know, we don't want to ever go back to a situation where folks in, you know, um, For instance, Katrina are on top of a rooftop saying, I'm waiting for FEMA. This can't happen in the future. As I said earlier, there are too many disasters. There, there are more people in this world. These are high cost events, and we all need to be have a hand in preparing and managing through. And what uh, Becker and, and his colleagues are talking about is recognizing individual community and institutional responsibilities for um, boosting resilience and for being prepared Um, In times of disasters, individuals have that personal responsibility to understand, you know, what they need to be prepared for, what they can do, what they can offer in times of disaster, meaning, for instance, we have read stories and presented stories of where individuals have said you know my home is open to my neighbors i have a generator and if we have a uh, a flood and power goes out i invite my neighbors to come to my house So this helps people understand that they have a responsibility um, as well as the community to bring together groups and support individuals and governments in this process. Um, And then of course, governments having responsibility, understanding what their capabilities are. And this gets back to um, when I was talking earlier about the idea of preparedness, governments understanding what are the capabilities of the public, not only what the capabilities of their staff and employees are. Um, and and I use this analogy. I provide an analogy of watching a drive-in movie at noontime on a sunny day. It's really hard to make out what's going on, right? but you know when it becomes dark when darkness falls the movie and everything in it becomes very clear you can understand what's going on you see it very clearly and that's really how disasters work um meaning you know governments businesses nonprofits communities individuals we all go about our business with little regard for weak links in any of our our own or other operations and processes, um, much less what needs to be done when disaster strikes. And then disaster strikes and all of a sudden we see the weak links. They're very much exposed. Crumbling infrastructure, poor fiscal capacity, little to no accounting of assets and costs that are very necessary in the aftermath of a disaster. Um, Who the... Um, particularly vulnerable populations are. We find out all these things in a disaster, Uh, day to day, we don't really think about it. And so a whole of community approach, an an enterprise approach is trying to get everybody inside and outside of government to uh, predominantly hold a sense of responsibility, be attuned to the weak links in our systems and be ready and willing to contribute in own capacity to government readiness and recovery.
2: So, Catherine, what are the five ways local governments can develop disaster readiness capacity?
0: Okay, yeah, we um, surveyed local governments around the nation through ICMA in 2019 in November and um, learned from them the different things that they can do to um, improve readiness. Um, One is uh, engaging in pre disaster contracts. And what this means is um, engaging with partnerships for things like um, who could provide sand, for instance, or who could provide generators. And having these contracts in place makes it easier than to you know, engage them in, in times of need. So pre-disaster contracts requires then that a local government be you know, anticipating. What are the kinds of disasters we anticipate? What have we had in the past? What have our neighbor neighbors experienced? And then what are the kinds of things we're going to need um, in order to manage and recover through? So pre-disaster contracts that are already in place are helpful. Technology resources. So having, having the ability to um, know that your communication center is Safe and updated um, is important. having uh, data, important data like um, your payroll uh, offsite or an avenue where it is safe and can be engaged uh, af- in the aftermath of a disaster, you still have to pay employees, and you definitely have to pay those who are conducting you know uh, Herculean work for cleanup and uh, disaster recovery. So looking at those, again, this gets at our um, uh, that enterprise approach, understanding the capabilities of your government. and that falls along the, the IT systems, the fiscal systems, the management systems, the employment systems, uh, et cetera. Um, Being familiar with protocols and and, um, of these five, uh, 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 most most of the local governments we talked to um, did engage each one of these. um, Pre-disaster contracts, the fewest local governments were engaged in those, but technology resources, 94% of local governments said they um, were on top of that. Being familiar with the protocols for engaging with FEMA, for instance, and um, being able to communicate with your state partners and your federal partners and any regional or neighboring partners, very important to understand those protocols and what you need to do. Many governments, having gone through disaster, are more familiar now with what they need to have front and center when they go to FEMA, for instance, or when they negotiate and uh, talk with their home county and or their state. Local fiscal resources, having an understanding, 95% of those we surveyed uh, did have a good understanding of local fiscal resources available to be able to tap um, should a disaster strike. This may be funds within their own government. It may be um, uh, other funds that they can secure. Um, It might be an emergency fund. Uh, availability that they have been stoking, you know, for past years in in anticipation of a particular disaster, and then finally um, having mutual aid agreements, much like the pre-disaster contracts. Mutual aid agreements are very important um, to be able to not only secure help in in times of your government's need, but also um, being there for others in their time of need. So um, so, pre-disaster contracts, technology resources, being familiar with the protocols um, following disaster to se- secure relief, uh, having an understanding of local fiscal resources and um, being cognizant and engaging in mutual aid agreements and having those in place are all Uh, really important ways that local governments can be ready for the next disaster that's around the corner.
2: What role do local ordinances play in disaster management and resilience? We will explore this question and so much more when our special edition of the Business of Government Hour Conversation with Authors returns. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors, exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with Catherine Willoughby, co-author of the IBM Center Report, How Localities Continually Adapt Enterprise Strategies to Manage Natural Disasters. So Catherine, what role do local ordinances play in disaster management resilience and how can local ordinances support disaster management?
0: Well, one um, building codes and standards are one that are extremely important regarding local ability to mitigate losses from disasters and to navigate better following disaster. These are just extremely important for local governments to push for higher, stronger building codes and standards. Um, it's, It's happening slowly, but it's still there's a big, you know, seesaw between enhancing building standards for resiliency versus economic development in uh, governments across the United States. So that's one area that I would say it needs some national attention Um, because if we can improve building standards and help strengthen infrastructure to mitigate the effects of disasters of all sorts, then that helps tremendously in keeping costs down. It's just very expensive today to manage through a disaster and recover from a disaster. We have more hardscapes than ever before. Um, we do have lax building codes and standards. And we have very high density spots, you know, in our cities, um, high population cities. So disasters can be very, very expensive. Local ordinances too determine who can be involved in government action. Um, They regard the use and management of volunteers, for example. So you wanna have ordinances that allow for engaging the public in the work of government. Technically, one great story I think about relates to COVID and how it's affected local governments and King County, Washington and King County, Washington, they pivoted immediately to disaster mode. And with COVID, they created um, what they termed community navigators. And these were people who could bridge between various communities and the government on communicating what the government was providing to these communities and then from the community to government what they needed. And so that was very clever and a great engagement of sort of a whole of community approach that I think is is vital. Ordinances detail fiscal responsibilities for governments. Who's responsible? They map out procurement strategies, bidding, contracting, purchasing, limits, and accountability. So it's very important when disaster strikes that, um, for instance, the city manager, who, you know, is is managing the nuts and bolts of response that they can um, make purchases perhaps over some uh, determined limit on a normal basis, that they can, uh, you know, make big purchases of supplies or generators or sand or whatever it is that they need in an emergency. So looking very carefully at those ordinances and checking those for, are we ready for an emergency? Can we buy stuff and manage people and engage people um, uh, legally and, and well in time of disaster? And then Ordinances also stipulate agency responsibilities and interactions with external partners. Um, For instance, they give voice to the emergency services director in a local government. So does that person have legally some flexibility to operate in this environment and to sort of take control and be able to manage Um, For instance, a, a number of department heads during a number of agencies during some sort of disaster. So local ordinances are very important because they can either offer up uh, flexibility to uh, officials and to employees during and and following a disaster or they can constrict them and that can have a you know a, obviously a, a probably negative impact on the ability of the government to react and respond in times of disaster
2: that's interesting so your report notes that local officials face three sets of challenges could you outline those challenges for us
0: sure sure we we found three particular challenges infrastructure challenges management challenges and financial challenges for local governments in times of disaster infrastructure challenges i think everybody can is probably now today aware of. We know that um, deferred maintenance is a common practice, particularly of um, struggling local governments on a mm-hmm. daily basis. And so this means that many important infrastructure systems across the nation are in pretty bad shape. And, you know, if a water system is, you um, in bad shape and then compromised in a disaster. Uh, folks don't realize, you know, the, the funding doesn't come to give you back brand new. The funding comes for you to take it back to what it was. So, this is important for folks to understand that poor infrastructure is not necessarily going to get a, a brand new, beautiful replacement. And so um, one thing we found in our study is that lots of local governments are really, really struggling with the fact that their infrastructure is in poor repair. One local city manager told us, you know, we haven't fixed our infrastructure for half a century. They're they're getting to the point of being unable to um, provide clean water. And, you know, it's just going to take, you know, a, a small flood or disaster to rip it all to shreds and they've got to figure out how they're going to uh, raise revenues and um, develop a a better system to, to remain viable. Understanding those infrastructure challenges are really critical to local governments to be able to survive, both having an understanding of what's chiefly vulnerable. In all sorts of kinds of disasters, and also knowing um, how they plan to replace it. You know, what is the plan for replacement? Understanding that they are probably not going to be able to, um, you know, get full funding to replace a damaged system. In the management system, the management challenges are, you know, becoming more and more evident today. And that's because. First of all, let's let's admit there's disaster fatigue. And so many governments are grappling today with the fact that their employees and staff are simply exhausted from managing from disaster to disaster. We see in the current situation with COVID that hospitals are overrun and healthcare workers are becoming burnt out and there's a nursing shortage. So in the same way, we get this with um, disaster management with government employees and staff. And also there's the challenge for management to keep up their operations and for instance, maintain the costs and the inventories that they need to be able to present to the state and to the feds once disaster strikes to be able to get some recompense. So the management challenges are very great for local governments, um, not only just to be able to interact with other levels of government for disaster relief, but also the day-to-day operations of managing uh, disaster after disaster, or as I said earlier, concurrent disasters such as a flood and a pandemic, and possibly a ransomware attack. And then finally, um, the financial challenges are certainly great. I mean, remember, state and local governments do have to balance their budgets. And so there's not a great incentive, or there certainly hasn't been in the past, for local governments to pack away quote, extra money to an emergency fund that they can then, you know, tap into. So there's that problem. But there's also this uh, problem on, for instance, you know, any budget or staffing restrictions uh, to be able to effectively manage through a disaster. That gets back to that idea of ordinances. And you can see how all this becomes an enterprise operation, understanding how everything's linked. How can you use money from different funds? You know, having that all the necessary documentation you need to get funding from the state and from the federal government. So, I mean, this is all on top of the fact that many local governments today, particularly small ones, rural ones, are in I'll just say it, pretty terrible financial shape. So we kind of have this layered um, layered problems on local governments to be able to fight through uh, financial challenges. So those three are are important and and really encompass all of what government does.
2: Very important insights. so, What are the four key lessons learned by local officials as outlined in your IBM Center report?
0: Well, a big one we learned was that small localities are especially vulnerable today. And we heard this time and again from, uh, you know, small towns, they have limited resources, they're small communities, they don't have, you know, their uh, residents really can't afford to pay any more in taxes or fees than they already are. And, you know, internal to the government, there's often not enough employees, there's um, Less capability to be able to do the things you need to do to be prepared to take action. So, small towns uh, and small localities are especially vulnerable to problems with disaster. And, you know, we've seen with various disasters um, that sometimes these small communities are going to go away and never come back. When North Carolina coast is hit often with hurricanes and flooding um, and all kinds of disasters, and many small towns simply aren't able to come back. So there's there's that. Now, that said, uh, disasters are local, but many are regional, and so this is where even a small local government can survive by virtue of having partnerships and relationships with their neighbors and and those in the region. So extending your network is so important for these small local governments um, to do. So having, doing all those things we talked about, you know, pre-disaster contracts, um, understanding what can I expect from the, uh, from my, our home county. Okay, which is a big resource for small rural uh, governments. So, understanding the regional aspects of um, disasters is vitally important. Relatedly, remember, is this idea of engaging the community. And another lesson we learned was the importance of, quote, building plans that the community supports. And this gets at this enterprise action by government officials to actively go out and include their communities in their planning efforts. For instance, engaging the community in their strategic planning, so that you come up with plans that in times of disaster, you know where the public stands and you're able to direct support and work toward those efforts to move you forward in those strategic plans. This not only helps with uh, boosting trust in government, um, but it also helps in terms of being efficient in guiding actions um, that will have the support of the community in a very fragile time. Um, And then, you know, having that Uh, Everything's, uh, you know, rests on communication and having a consolidated communication system at the ready. That's a fourth lesson that we learned. Um, And communication is not simply being able to put out some sort of address, you know, by the mayor, for instance. It really has to be considered who is communicating and our government is communicating with one voice, in spite of the fact that we will need to engage many different people for um, different components of that message. For instance, we learned, particularly during COVID, that the mayor can provide hopeful messages and be a sounding board to the community um, for, managing through, whereas a city manager can provide the nuts and bolts communication about where do you need to go, what do you need to do, um, you know, things like that. And then you can have a communications director that's going to manage communications that may came, come out of different departments. For instance, in, a, in the instance of a flood, The mayor, again, can provide hope and solace to the community, and the city manager can explain what the government, the steps the government's taking and going to take, and then a communications director can manage communications from the sewer system, the water system, the emergency services director, et cetera, so that everybody's getting one message, but it's different forms.
2: And, and Catherine, uh, along with the lessons learned, you and your colleagues develop an enterprise framework. Um, I'm hoping you could describe for us what this enterprise framework is about and what are the key components within the framework that are necessary for achieving local government resiliency.
0: Okay. Yeah, we really worked on this idea of, um, you know, disaster, and it got us thinking about the fact um, of action in today's world is really, you know, and local governments in particular are dealing with these chronic problems of things like homelessness, crumbling infrastructure, high crime, poverty etc but they're also dealing with these acute problems that we uh, label disasters and as i noted disasters of all sorts so we tried to think about what are the things that local governments need to do to be able to manage well through these acute problems that will also influence um, building resiliency related to chronic problems and recognizing all the other different stakeholders and players in the process. And this engages our intergovernmental system. So how can local governments operate along with their state government and the federal government to manage well through acute problems and chronic problems to uh, boost resiliency and move on to better, uh, stronger economic development? And so we used everything we learned in our survey and talking to local government officials to map out these six um, strategies that local governments can use to manage well. And we think they're important and we think that the framework offers an easy avenue for local officials and communities to, to look at it and be able to think about what are the most important things that we need to do Um, Because I'll tell you, no local government can do all of these things all of the time. But they can think about each one of these, and they can enhance the ones that are maybe uh, uh, most vulnerable to problems.
2: How can we advance local government resiliency in a natural disaster? We will explore this question and so much more when our special edition of the Business of Government Hour, A Conversation with Authors, returns.
1: How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, A Practitioner's Framework for Measuring Results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT Management Framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download A Practitioner's Framework for Measuring Results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today.
2: Welcome back to the special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors, exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with Catherine Willoughby, co-author of the IBM Center Report, How Localities Continually Adapt Enterprise Strategies to Manage Natural Disasters. We're getting right into recommendations and strategies, Catherine. So how important is it for localities to develop a network of what you call horizontal and vertical partners? And do you have any advice on how they can do it?
0: Sure. Um, One of our local officials told us from a small town in Kansas, he said, you know, if you're going into local government, you need to start from. And this was a manager. He said, you got to start from day one developing a network of partners and he said i went around to all the managers of all the governments in our county to say let's have lunch once a month and talk about what our needs are what our strengths are how we can help each other and he said if we don't have anything to talk about or feel like we're all great we'll just talk about football You know, I thought that was great. You know, it's this idea, if you're going to the state or FEMA the first time asking for money, you're too late. You're not, you're gonna have some problems. You need to understand who do I need to be working with? Who is in this position? And see, today, those positions change constantly. We know there's a lot of turnover, so, a local official needs to be savvy enough to be on top of that, to be thinking, who are my partners? Who are in these positions? Do I know them? Do I have their phone number, their cell number? Um, have we talked recently? And that's something you can do sort of on a daily basis. Then over the course of a month, two months, three months, you've kind of developed at least a knowledge base of folks and y'all are familiar with each other so that's something it does take time it is going to take time but as we know folks that go into uh, local government service have high energy for um you know, being able to quote, help people, this is what we do. So the strategy one, developing a network of horizontal and vertical partners means reaching out to your neighboring governments, to any nonprofits, businesses, regional collaboratives, and then also reaching up the ladder to the state level and to uh, your FEMA partners to be able to understand who's there, what's their name, Do they know my name? And um, that's going to make everything a lot easier once disaster strikes.
2: So earlier, Catherine, you explained what is meant by the whole of community approach to disaster relief. How can localities develop policies using a whole of community approach?
0: Yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, One. They can look at their at like governments, you know, they can look at neighbors and others and see what are the kinds of policies that have helped them manage through. There's a lot of learning going on. And the uh, results of all that learning is that we can take information we know is worked somewhere else in a community like ours and look at it and see how we can apply it to our own. So looking to what others have done, also using the whole of community approach is is just vital. That's that idea of reaching out to your um, different communities within your jurisdiction in different ways. You might have, a couple of focus groups, you might have town hall meetings, you might have something online, you might do a quick survey. There are all kinds of things to be able to engage the public and get their ideas, put material out to them and see if they like it or don't like it. Because what you want to happen when disaster strikes is your public is behind you and they will follow through. Um, We did see, for instance, in many cases where a government had engaged the public in their strategic planning, for instance, and they knew the kinds of things that were important to their public. And then when disaster did strike, they were able to move forward quickly in rebuilding particular areas or getting kids back in school or whatever to make it happen because they knew that their public was behind them.
2: So, Catherine, what does it mean that localities maintain a current inventory of assets? And perhaps you could share any advice on how they can do this effectively.
0: This is an important one and one we got a little bit of pushback from local officials saying, well, we we don't have the time and resources to do that. Um, Maintaining a current inventory of assets is, again, it's this idea of understanding what shape is our infrastructure in. What are we responsible for? What do we own? And assigning costs to those, because that's the kind of information you're you're gonna need to have in your hand on a laptop, ready to send to FEMA or the state or other organizations to be able to get relief. How do you maintain an inventory? Well, you A, you have to start creating an inventory. And I would say um, large local governments can probably engage support in their planning offices with their finance uh, office and, and engineers in their government to do it. But small local governments, I say go to your state university, go to your public administration departments and get an intern. You know, engage a remote intern to help you begin the process of tabulating your infrastructure and assets and assigning costs to those. There are also uh, many universities with environmental uh, resiliency uh, programs that would have students and interns that would be interested in this. Uh, Engineering students would be interested in this. So, So universities are there to help. And students, we need our students out there doing this kind of work and learning about it. So I would say engage an intern if you feel you can't engage your staff at this point because they're overstressed and or you simply can't afford to do it. And also, I would say there are many disaster management centers and environmental sustainability um, and public management centers that can direct you and help you in this kind of activity.
2: Catherine, you mentioned throughout our conversation that uh, these local communities and governments and municipalities are dealing with you know, multiple uh, emergent issues uh, that really stretch both resources and finances. How critical is it for localities to understand and advance financial options afforded to them, and perhaps you could share some advice on how they can do this effectively.
0: Again, I think this goes back to, you know, it's important for us to lay out these strategies because uh, a government and officials in the government may not really be thinking about that. And so just by virtue of putting it on paper helps to remind them, do you know what resources you will have do you know the funds that you have in your government that you could take advantage of it can be the year end balance coupled with an emergency fund coupled with the ability to be able to call funds from every a little bit of funds from every department in addition to what funds you may be able to secure from the state what funds you may be able to secure from some regional collaborative, and and then what what funding you can anticipate would be forthcoming from FEMA. And related to all of this is what documentation will we need to be able to provide an accounting of any funds we seek and then uh, that we secure. Uh, And, you know, thinking about These questions when disaster strikes is kind of impossible. You might have a city hall, for instance, that's destroyed. You might have your whole computer system down. So it's not the time to try to dig this stuff out when disaster strikes. And that's the importance of disaster readiness strategies like this.
2: So, Catherine, would you tell us more about the strategy you outlined for localities to jointly train and conduct exercises in disaster and emergency management?
0: Yeah, this is something that um, I think, again, folks aren't really attuned to. And we again, we got pushback with um, local people saying, you know, we can't do that. We don't have the, uh, you know, wherewithal, well, not the wherewithal, but we don't have the capacity to do that. In today's world, that's simply not true. First of all, FEMA, its national preparedness system, um, has just a wealth of training, webinars, courses, free, that um, can be used by officials at any level of government. Um, And so, you know that's one many uh many of your neighboring governments or your home county government conducts training and you can be a part of that think about if you've created this network of horizontal partners and you engage and they you know people want lots of people to be at the training we know in the age of zoom uh what's possible to get people involved so there there is just a cornucopia of training out there to be had. And I would say it just takes a focus on the part of uh, a local government to say, let's decide that we are going to ask our employees, all our employees, not just agency heads, not just the emergency management division, not just the mayor, not just the city manager, but everyone to have some training on disaster management. And I think that's something that, again, a local official can start on from day one to say what training is out there, what kinds of training do we think we need for the kinds of disasters that we can expect. And let's start getting our employees to simply, for instance, tell employees, please, in the next two weeks, follow through on watching one webinar give them choices and and do that, and then possibly have a lunch and learn. These are small things um, that you can do and you can start day one and think about it. After one year, think about the training that, the exposure that everybody in that government would have had. And conducting exercises um, is getting folks to think about what's possible, getting them to think about what they might've thought was impossible in days past or times past is now possible. What if we did get a tsunami? What if we did get a tsunami and, and we had a ransomware attack the day before and the pandemic is ongoing, what would we do? And you know, I was struck that I um, heard on the radio the other day, it was an advertisement from our national readiness system that said, do you know who you would call if disaster struck, do you know if your cell phone would work? Do you have a plan? And, you know, it was for individuals. It was a, it was a um, public service announcement. And that is, that's what this is. This is trying to get folks to think about the, what's possible and then how they would react to that.
2: So, Catherine, throughout our conversation, you mentioned the importance of public communication, the effectiveness of public communication uh, in both pre-disaster and post-disaster. How important is it for localities to develop a public communication plan in advance?
0: Sure. Um, Well, you know, they can they can be pretty sophisticated. Even the smallest local government can be pretty sophisticated. You know, we can take advantage of social media. You can have. Announcements, you can make calls to cell phones, you can have online materials. Remember the King County, again, I go back to them because they were pretty innovative. With COVID, you know, they had been talking about changing and upgrading their communication with different communities. They changed their communication to be inclusive of 30 different languages you know, when COVID hit and they knew they were going to have to be um, communicating with their public better, more clearly and more efficiently. And they did that. They also engaged uh, a bot um, that they had been talking about for years and they engaged it almost immediately. So um, today we have lots of avenues. What's required is that local governments think about it and start taking action. And this regards What are our communication platforms and outlets? How can we take advantage of those, better advantage of those? How do we present one voice from the government? And depending on who in government is communicating, what is their message? So that you can provide a comprehensive message, as I noted earlier, both of hope, vision, efficiency, effectiveness, even equity. Of response and communication. So, uh, again, it requires that, and and uh, you know, a communications plan in advance also requires that you look at your IT, your IT capacity, and um, its vulnerability. Should disaster strike, if I think the uh, Tuscaloosa tor- tornado took out uh, Tuscaloosa's communications building at the time, if I if I remember correctly. And you know, that's completely debilitating for the local government to be able to um, hit the ground running uh, following the disaster to communicate with their residents and the public. So, you know, a comprehensive view of who's communicating, how do we get out one voice, what are our outlets, what's our IT capacity, all of these things come into play.
2: Well, thank you, Catherine, for being with us today. But more importantly, I want to thank you for your report for the IBM Center.
0: Sure, sure. I was glad to participate and uh, thank you for having me.
2: This has been a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with Catherine Willoughby, co-author of the IBM Center report, How Localities Continually Adapt Enterprise Strategies to Manage Natural Disasters. You can download this and all center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app. And as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us.
1: This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan Ang, presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more.